I am super, super, super stoked to have Jess Chan joining us from Toronto, Canada. Jess is the CEO of Longplay Brands. She bootstrapped this agency, scaled it to seven figures in revenue in 18 months, which is crazy. What is going on in your mind in terms of leaving a safe job and jumping into the sort of uh, uncertain waters of entrepreneurship? Yeah, for me, uh, one, I'm always the first one to say, like, I am not a risk taker. There was always this pressure of like, in the beginning with Longplay, it was like, how do I scale to seven figures as quickly as possible and there's no room for failure in that all these noise around celebrating i feel like there's a victory lap every day going on about some startup some founder which is great but it's kind of like sometimes it just has this unfair setting of expectations for yourself so retention marketing is just the game of like how do you keep your customers email and sms are kind of the foundational most important channels to use in keeping your customers i lost um eighteen thousand uh, dollars by investing into uh, hey everybody Welcome to the Building Public Podcast. I'm your host, KP, and on this show, I interview world-class entrepreneurs, ambitious startup founders, creators, and builders on the internet who are boldly building the future in public. This podcast is my excuse to take you all on a curious journey to understand, learn, and hopefully be inspired by the worldviews, insights, and stories of these fabulous people changing the world. So far, I've gotten the rare privilege to sit down with incredible guests like Gary Vee, Alexis Ohanian, Kat Cole, Sahil Levingia, and many more leaders. So check out the full podcast listing at buildingpublicpodcast.com. Now buckle up and get ready for our latest episode. Hello, everybody. I am KP and welcome to the Building Public Podcast. I am super, super, super stoked to have Jess Chan joining us from Toronto, Canada. Jess is the CEO of Longplay Brands, which is a full service retention and lifecycle marketing agency for DTC e-commerce brands. Um, she bootstrapped this agency, scaled it to seven figures in revenue in 18 months, which is crazy. And since then, she's been building this business and scaling it sustainably and profitably with a remote team. Longplay Brands has generated over $300 million in email marketing, email revenue for clients from startups all the way to $500 million clients. She's now also focused on a product, not just an agency, a product called Backbone, which is a platform designed to streamline email marketing for small e-commerce teams. It's one of the first email marketing solutions for DTC companies. I love her content. I mean, apart from these two amazing accomplishments, the thing that really resonated was the fact that she's, you know, she's gotten a lot more active on Twitter now. And I've been following her Dairy of an Entrepreneur, you know, which is sort of the reality show version or, you know, if you, if you will, a series of daily tweets and updates, like almost like a vlog of her journey as an entrepreneur. Um, much more than all of this, I loved her content and her DMs that we've been exchanging uh, over the last few months. And she's such a giver and someone who I would love to emulate, you know, in terms of energy, in terms of vibe, in terms of, you know, just like being generous. So all that said, welcome to the show, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. And that was the kindest intro of all time. So I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. And I, for a while, when in the early stages of the podcast, I had like a very formal intro for people and I kind of hated it looking back because it felt like so not me, you know, and I'm like, what? There's, I don't have a boss. I'm the head of this, you know, creative project. And every time I gave out, I said or did like a hype intro, that was so me. 
you know, I call this hype intro because my uh, there's a joke at on deck when I was working that I would give hype intros to people all the time. So I brought this back. So now we're back to the hype intros. Anyway, why don't you kick off with one of the inflection points that got you into the journey of being an entrepreneur? You know, like if you look back, was there a defining moment or a couple, you know, drop hints or um, like if you look back, like some inflection points that you made, you realize that maybe that's where I get this drive to be an entrepreneur from. Yeah, um, I think the first inflection point that just kind of popped up um, when you when you ask that question is when I was I think I was 19, 1920 ish at that time. Um, I entered into essentially a, a year, year and a half of just, it was just a dark period. So it was panic attacks, anxiety, depression, like suicidal thoughts, just like general hopelessness, purposelessness kind of um, space. And I was still, you know, doing my university degree at that time. I and mean, just really feeling like, you know, this isn't the path that that feels right. Like there's nothing for me to be excited about after I finish this degree. And looking around me, everyone was just like, well, you're, you don't have to think two years ahead yet. You don't have to think three years ahead. Yet. Just finish your degree first. And I was like, why is no one else? Like, am I the only person who is like looking ahead and realizing this goes nowhere? So I think there's this combination of like aloneness, but also missing purpose and also feeling like there's something bigger. And that was when I and just being in that dark period, I remember just waking up at some point and I was like, you know what? I, I am done with this. I am done with this. I hate everything. Everything sucks energy. What, where can I, what can I do um, at the very least to get out of this? And that's when I started researching like self-development blogs, like early stage, like Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, and just looking for something to do and, and really leaning on a daily routine of, you know, mm. let me read, read for an hour and a half and then journal and then go for a run. I would do like three hour long runs listening to Tim Ferriss podcasts and then started creating these mini side projects. So, you know, what if I was to be a UI UX designer? Let me design a little UI UX project or let me be a JavaScript developer. Let me try to create a mini project for myself and launch it. Um, then I did like a daily blog. So it was all these like little projects just to have some level of like purpose or something I would be excited about. And that whole path led me to becoming a marketing assistant uh, at Best Self Co, which was my first like real quote unquote real job at an e-com company. And then that became a CMO position. And then that eventually um, led to the agency. So even though that wasn't my first like true like starting a business and being an entrepreneur, I think that was kind of when the seed of you can create anything and, and create your own path started. And I kind of almost see the CMO position and my job as like the stepping stone into entrepreneurship. But the seeds really started kind of before that. Yeah, I, I love that. And and OK, so now I got an interesting like maybe off tangent, but like take me into the mind of Jess, where you're CMO at this e-com company and you're running this, you know, massive business. What's the rough run rate of the business at that point? How big is the company? At that point, um, I believe when I joined, it was probably like low seven figures. Um, okay. Maybe like they had just launched their or finished their Kickstarter. They right. had essentially a single product um, and maybe like a few peripheral products. It was probably a team of like five people. Uh, came in as a part-time marketing assistant at that time. That was my, I had no experience in e-commerce or marketing at that right. time. And then I was there for six months part-time finishing up college. Um, and then when I graduated, they offered me the chief marketing officer position. And I remember thinking nice. like, this is the world's most unqualified promotion of all time. <laughs> uh, but like, we're just going to run with it. And then I was with them for three years and we had ended just under um, eight figures when I left. Eight figures. So by the time you were leaving, right? And so it's almost like, let's say, you know, close to eight figures, um, and my, my 
what I'm curious about is what is going on in your mind in terms of leaving a safe job and jumping into the sort of uh, uncertain waters of entrepreneurship? Yeah, for me, uh, one, I'm always the first one to say, like, I'm not a risk taker. Like, I'm not a risky person. Um, I hate risk. It gives me anxiety. Like, even going to casinos, I'm like, how do I play with 25 cents and, like, play craps? And, you know, th there's no there's no big bets happening here. Um, that is so funny because, you know, that just goes in in uh against the grain of the general perception of entrepreneurs some, i genuinely believe some of the greatest entrepreneurs are risk averse i think so you know, too they, we be but the rap the reputation of our industry yeah. is that oh it's risk taking right oh like it's jump completely into it but i feel like some of the savviest you know people on the planet including charlie munger and warren buffett and all these amazing legends who are not entrepreneurs but like you know investors they're very calculated and smart they're not yes. blind into jumping so that exactly. was funny you said that you're a risk averse person and it's funny looking for the because my friends would say the same thing and they're like you just you you put you invested six figures of your own money into building the software company and like completely bootstrapped so like that in itself is technically risky because we're like here's a bunch of poker chips like six figures and like let's let's hope this works but i think you're you're completely correct which is the whole game of entrepreneurship is how do you make big swings and then de-risk it as much as possible yeah rather than making this like blind leap of faith Yes. Um, so that with, is why I was curious because you were at the at the seat of being a CMO, which is a nice, safe, cushion job, right? Mm -hmm. um, what What were the series of events that happened to go to go full time? Yeah. So it was honestly still pretty relatively de risked in the sense where I was doing the CMO position and I had start started taking on like essentially consulting clients, and eventually it became you know the consulting was like, can you just do it for me? And then I was taking on a bunch of doing a bunch of different marketing things and eventually realizing, you know, email and SMS is kind of the most scalable business. Um, so, but before I left, I was already um, doing the CMO position. And then I was also having, I probably had like maybe three to five clients at most um, on the long play side. And I, I think I already had a full-time one or two full-time virtual assistants and then maybe a copywriter and a designer a contractor. Um, so it was quote unquote, like an established business. We were still, it was still very little money. Like it was, we were, we, I don't think we broke, you know, 10, 15 grand in MRR. Could you, by could, the time you replace, I left. could you replace your salary with it or not yet? No, I couldn't replace my salary with it yet. Um, but also at the time I was like, I was a 22, 23 year old kid. Like I had no responsibilities. And it's that those, that's one of those things where how much risk is it really? And when we mm. think about risk, it's this idea of, oh, it's so risky. But like the biggest risk really was ego. It was what <laughs> if I fail, right? But is right. that really that big of a risk? It's really not because um, if it really came down to it, like I could go back, find a job. I could probably take on some more, some more consulting clients, do something scrappy. I could make the money back from my salary if I really wanted to. So when we think about this risk, the risk is really about what if I fail? What will people think? Like, oh my what God. What people think, right? That's yeah. the big risk, I think. And if you can <laughs> get are. over that identity ego, there actually typically is not as much risk as we mm -hmm. think there is. Right. Even losing a lot of money, like even with our software company, which I know we'll kind of get into, like investing six figures there, it's like, yes, it's a risk, but also our agency can make it back if we just double down, if we really need to. So the biggest risk is what if I dump six, six figures in and I lose it and I have failed as a second time entrepreneur. That is actually the scarier thing that I think entrepreneurs don't, um, don't talk about. Yeah. And also, and, and, you know, if you're a high agency person, 
and you work hard and you have the work ethic and like in, in the grand scheme of 80 years, right? Like you will make that money back, right? Mm -hmm. it is, I lost um, $18,000 uh, by investing into uh, an offshore agency for the dev shop to build an MVP for an unvalidated idea in 2018, right? Um, and again, I, I was naive and I did the best I could for that year that version of KP, the wisdom of what I have today, I would definitely not do that, right? But like that version of KP's highest peak ceiling wisdom was that. Mm -hmm. And I and I did customer discovery and all these other things. Ultimately, I had to shut down the company in eight months. I felt devastated. It was rock bottom and all that. But looking back, oh, I learned. It was my MBA. Yeah, yeah that's what, the cost of your do? MBA. So it's yeah, actually it was, it's money very well spent. <laughs> exactly. And it was an MBA and what not to do. I'm like, for the rest of my life, I am forever wise. Right? That's the beauty of education through failure is that for the rest of your life, you're forever wise in mm -hmm. not doing what I did there, which is in that case, I didn't have found a market fit. Right? I was trying to build a SaaS product for sales reps and I was not in that industry at all. And also didn't have a full-time CTO or a full, like a technical co-founder on the team, which I would do it on day one. So now I would never repeat those mistakes, right? But like in the moment, those painful failures were the necessary, you know, step to get to the next level. I think um, an important uh, element that you touched on there too is the benefit of thinking in longer time spans. Because if, yeah. we're, if we're looking at the time span of, I must be as successful as I, as I can in two yeah. years, and you really have no room for failure. And I was yes. in that camp. Like there's so much pressure in my early mid-20s. 20s um, is like that though. I was like that in 20s. Oh my god! Like, and transparently, like, I'm 27 now. Um, oh, so you're, you're still, still okay. I'm 35. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I included I'm you in the 30s, 30s camp. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. People usually assume I'm like in my 30s, but um, there's always this pressure of like in the beginning with long play. It was like, how do I scale to seven figures as quickly as possible? And there's no room for failure in that. Whereas now, I think I was tweeting about this recently. Like, I am thinking in like 50 year time frames. Yeah. And it's so much more fun to do entrepreneurship when you're thinking through your time frames because a few failures, you know, it doesn't really matter. The yeah. urgency isn't there as much. It's really about having those long-term investments. Yeah. You and know, also it also reduces anxiety too. Anxiety, oh my God. And see, look, I also think that all these noise, you know, on Twitter and LinkedIn, whatever, podcasts, whatever, all these noise around celebrating you know, like I feel like there's a victory lap every day going on about some startup, some founder, which is great, but it's kind of like sometimes it just has this unfair setting of expectations for yourself because mm -hmm. it subtly influences your thinking and it compresses your timeline in which greatness happens, right? Michael yes. Jordan, anybody you would agree on the planet is the GOAT in basketball, NBA. 15 years of his career, lost nine years championship, only wins six. But nobody, nobody, like, nobody can deny he was the GOAT. He was the GOAT, but he only won six times out of, you know, 15. I made a tweet recently about this. So can you imagine, like, you were the GOAT of the basketball. You were given, the, you were kissed by God when you were at birth to be this person, right? MJ, and you could only win six rings out of 15 appearances. But if you view your career as nine failures or nine losses or whatever, you're never going to get through it, you know? So... Even like a, a star-studded career like his only had such a small hit rate. So we as entrepreneurs, the beauty is we can play this for 80 years. Charlie Munger dead, was, you know, passed away 99. So we can literally play the game and he was still taking meetings and podcasts and all that, right? So we can play the game until 90s, as long as we're interested in it and win the last five years of rings and bam, you know? So it's like, but yeah. we, uh, it's such a hard thing to muster this when you're in, you know, in the influencer, yeah. right? Like I, the... I couldn't agree more. And 
it was something I was so conscious about when I started this diary, diary of an entrepreneur series because I'm like I want to be transparent but I also felt like in my like intuitively I can't share numbers and I can't share like True. these big wins not because I don't want to be transparent about our numbers but because it, it's going to contort the way I actually run the business if I feel like there's certain KPIs that are being watched so yeah. let's just share the emotional experience because yeah. you can you can have a great you can have a big win and still feel like a failure and also yeah. you can have no wins and feel like it's great. And I think that's yeah. actually a more true experience of entrepreneurship where sometimes your emotional experience of being an entrepreneur is completely disconnected from how your business is doing. Um, and that's very real. Um, and also I think it's just so easy to get addicted to like the dopamine heads of like big announcement. Here's a big win. Like here's posting up a, a screenshot of a dashboard. And usually those KPIs are less representative of where your business is going to be in six yes. months or, or a year. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then also, you chase on those dopamine hits. Yes. And it's, it's like none of that's permanent. Like the real, like the only respect that I'll get or give is if we can show that same graph over 70 year period. Sure. Cool. Then, but like I've been in companies, you know, where I was, you know, leading from the forefront and then, you know, like three years later, the company's, you know, evaporated, like it's gone. Right. Like, so it startups, the game is such a volatile thing and you can't even, you know, it's not even your fault. Right. Like I said, with MJ, like, he may have played amazingly well every season, but it's it's a team game and a market game and a combination of so many things. So mm -hmm. I feel like as entrepreneurs, especially in our generation, because we're so glued to our devices. I mean, I'm not saying all of us, but I'm just saying, you know, it's just the nature of where we are. We have this unbelievable pressure to crush it in two years or five years. You know, meanwhile, some of the greats have taken decades. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, and, and I do think the narrative has shifted a little bit with like the market shift and like, you know, there's less like unicorn venture cap stuff happening and, you know, I'm in the e-com space, but yeah. I think in general, it shifted a little bit away from that. Um, but I think like a few years ago, every headline was scale to X dollars in X, like an X number of months. And that was the mindset I was influenced with when I started long play, which yeah. was, you know, for me to be a quote unquote, like a real entrepreneur, I need to hit seven figures because everything below that is, you're not a true entrepreneur, which yeah. back now I'm like only, I think only 4% of entrepreneurs hit seven figures. Yeah. Um, do, you know, do you know how long it took? I didn't Nike. know at that time. I didn't me know too. at the time. So I was like, everyone, everyone, everyone. has a seven figure business. Oh, so every winner, right? We, the perception was every winner hit, you know, uh, seven figures in like a year. If not, you're a loser, right? But yeah. like, you know how many years it took for Nike, like one of the greatest companies of all time to hit seven figures? Six oh, years. Wow. Six I years. I know that. That's crazy. I love these statistics. These, I can't think about that. Nike, you, could you think Phil Knight was dumb? Like what? Yeah, like, that's that crazy. Goat. That's the problem though. It's because we're all over-indexing on, it's like over-indexing on how fast your baby can walk and crawl, but under-indexing on whether they're going to take drugs or not in teen. The shit that matters <laughs> is later. Right? Like, yep. are they going to like, you know, like your baby when they're growing up is fine. Let, when I have a two-year-old son and I see some of the parents when we go to these, you know, like uh, daycare stuff or whatever, I'm like, they're so desperate to prove to everybody in the room that their kid has, is, is like on the faster path of learning. I'm like, I, I don't give a rat's ass. Like my son, Neil, could come home and not be interested or I mean, not be learning as fast as talking as quickly as the other peers. I want him to find his curiosity whatever mm -hmm. he can eventually and just have fun. Love it. Right. Yep. Because that's the stuff that I think our parents did well, at least for us. Right. Like my mom did that for me. She didn't like, there was no insane pressure. And so when I think back, I'm like, wow, you know, we, we as founders treat our companies, like the way these, you know, competitive parents treat their kids. There's so much pressure for, to perform in the first three years. And you're like, what? The stuff that matters is, you know, in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, what are you going to do? Yep. And I think so. you also touched on an important point here, which is t especially with building a business, the 
the decisions that we make, if we're optimizing to hit a, as big of a growth rate as we can in the first year, three years, is often at the cost of long-term success. Yeah. So it's not it's not even just removing the anxiety and things like that. It's more, it's typically like you see those businesses that scale so quickly in three years and then they're gone or they're losing money or you know all these IPOs that have gone to shit once they once they launch because the business foundations were never built for long-term profitable no. sustainable growth they were always built to move as quickly as possible and be damned what's going to happen in 10 years and that was kind of very similar to, to my journey with long play as well where it's you know the first you know let's get to seven figures in the first year and a half did it <laughs> and, and it was great it was like oh, i'm a quote-unquote real entrepreneur now and i'm like there was no i felt nothing when we hit seven figures you know it's like it's just another like pnl that you get but the day-to-day -day experience of that was everything felt like it was on fire. I was stressed mm. out of my mind. I was like in every single part of the business, nothing was built to be sustainable and scalable because we just needed as much input as, as much output as possible. Like growing top line revenue is pretty easy in the sense where it's like, just do as much as, as you humanly can, whether you make money or not. So that was kind of the first you know year, year and a half. And then I'd say like we, this year has been probably one of the best years again, but the years two and three were we kind of almost we basically just flatlined revenue plateaued. for a little bit yeah. and we plateaued mm. and then we grew we grew a little bit during like we grew during COVID and then we grew last year as well so we still grew a, a good amount but we I think at some point we were like increasing profit by like three to five x the pace as our revenue growth um, and then our we like restabilized the team at some point we like turned over the entire team turned over our entire client base. Rebuilt the foundations, and I think it was such a beautiful reminder and beautiful lesson of if you don't get the foundations right and you try to skip that step, you're gonna have to go back and slow down to go yeah. do it right again. So you might yeah. as well do it right the first time because you get to avoid the emotional yeah. pain of like overhauling everything. Yeah. Um, either you don't get to skip steps, like either you your foundations yeah. are strong or they're not. You either build them right the first time or you have to go back around and do it do it do again. The second time. Yeah. Um, but having the foundation strong is like team is better profit is better like potential is better i'm i'm enjoying the process a lot more and like when i'm happy and our team is happy that is really where the growth of the company is going to come from yeah. um and i think just even reflecting on building this first business with the agency like that was that perfectly mirrored this lesson that we're talking about which is you can yeah. have the short-term growth but you know playing the long game is a different right. way of building i think business. you know it's just a nature of you know lack of introspection or lack of like you know because we're so busy reacting to cultural expectations right so you're like not really thinking independently and like this year i had a reckoning in doing thanksgiving i had to pause and really rethink really about like why am i influenced dramatically by all these little nuggets of tweets and posts and everything i'm like who's grading me right we always have this like thing where in school like ultimately you write the essay or you write the uh, math exam and there's a teacher who's grading you and giving you a plus or a and i'm an a student all in all in all a plus student in school which is a bad thing sometimes because i'm like so stressed to be at the best and i'm like oh in real life nobody freaking cares nobody is grading you on the timeline that you think they are so i took a step back and the the questions i had to ask myself was like would i trade i think there was a, there was a fun uh, prompt i had which i'm trying to recollect i trade would i trade a three-year seven-figure status but insane pressure and pain and all that but uncertainty you know for the rest of my life or would i trade a 50-year solid business that only makes a billion dollars in the last 10 years out of my ladder right and so i'm like who's counting who's keeping track of time who's like really you know like so and then i realized that this olympics that i'm signing up to is all my own <laughs> choice right this mental gymnastic olympics that i'm doing like a monkey i'm like that's dumb you know i can learn from the greats and so that's why i'm like starting to learn about warren buffett's and all the world and oh they played through decades this is a decade game 
So anyway, I, I have a very interesting uh, follow-up question because one of my strategies is something that I feel like you are embodying right now, which is start with an agency or some version of a service business with an MRR component, which is an agency, right? Typically with a retainer and do that for cash flow, but really sort of transcend or graduate into a product business or SaaS business because that stuff can scale much better. And also that is a sellable asset um, compared to, you know, and also margins are better. So when did this come about for you? When did you discover an opportunity for Backbone? Oh man, I have so much that I can touch on in this topic. So I'm glad you brought this up. So it's funny because with master game plan, it's so easy to backtrack into like, wow, there was this master game plan, but I will be fully transparent on like, here's the actual journey of this thing. So the agency was, I kind of stumbled into it um, in the sense where there I had I had kind of like a four-step game plan for my life, which I created when I was 20, which was very vague. It was just learn how to build a business, step one. Step two was learn, build a portfolio of businesses in a variety of different industries. And then third one was actually starting an education company. And then nonprofit wow. education was always my end goal. Um, so that's wow. like my mission, my vision. So that was like a super, like super broad game plan. But as long as I was going in that direction, everything was fine. So the agency was just the thing that kind of naturally appeared because that was where demand was. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to use an agency to learn how to build, just learn how to build a business in terms of team, finances, hiring, X, Y, Z. So scaled the agency up and went through the typical agency process, which was got to seven figures, hated everything. Everything's on fire. I'm like, I'm dying. I remember having, I was crying every single it's day. It's labor intensive like, though, right? Yeah. It's, it's labor intensive. I also, it's very emotionally intensive. I think that's the part people don't think about with agencies. Is why, like, why, why, why though? Which part of it? I want to, I'm curious. Because all there is is people and you're, you have team and then you have clients. And I was in a position where I was, so I'm also a people pleaser, which makes it very good for starting a business in the sense where you always over deliver, but it's a very emotionally draining. And I think back and I'm like, I'm an introvert and a people pleaser. And an agency is the most emotionally abusive C- company. <laughs> I could have started for myself based on my personality, um, but it was guaranteed success because I would just kill myself to make sure everyone was happy, right? So it actually worked out as a first business. But um, it's just, it, you're just always in communication. You're always in conversation. Whereas like with a product, you know, there's at least a little bit of a bubble and you, you don't have as much of a relationship with your customers in that, in that way. So, so are you saying that agency is kind of like a glorified group chat? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just all people and it- until you really embrace like true relationship building which like now I love um at that time it's just it's just a lot to take on because yeah. like and when you're this close with your clients and someone like their business is going down or they're upset or like something is happening like all that gets channeled towards you to some degree yeah. Um, so you really get sucked up into like 20, 30 people's businesses. And then you also have your team who is going through their own life thing. So at some point I always felt like something is always like someone's, someone's always have a family crisis. Something's always burning down. Someone's always having an emotional breakdown. Someone's always stressed. And like, that is just the nature of it. Um, and there's this, um, I remember I was reading Bob Iger's, I think like book on Disney or scaling Disney. And there was one story that like really stuck out to me where he was saying, Based on the scale of of Disney's team, like just the company size, if there is a world crisis, a world event, anything that happens in the news, it's almost guaranteed that someone is directly Defective. impacted in the company. Yeah. And like that is, and I think that was like a really grounding moment of like realizing like, oh, as you scale, there's always going to be something on fire. And that really reframed my expectations for how I relate to the company. Because before I always felt like, oh, like a team member's upset. Oh no, like, there's a problem. Oh no, a client is upset. Oh no, there's a problem. But you realize like at scale, some clients always going to be having some problems. Some team right. members always going to be having a problem. And that 
helped like de-escalate how I emotionally reacted to everything. Mm. So anyways, that's a total side tangent to the question, but that was kind of the agency and really went through a phase where I was like, burn it all down, like kill it, kill this thing. <laughs> I can't like, it's actually killing me. I'm having a panic attack every single day. I remember like I would have a panic attack crying on the floor and then get up and do a sales call. Oh and that God. was like what I would do for like a year and a half. So, um, so that was kind of the process. And then I brought on Rachel, who's my wonderful COO and a partner at uh, long play now. Um, and, sh- and we kind of run off the EOS model and that was a really, really big, important hire. And just our partnership has been one of the most important elements of scaling this business. Um, and we really reframed it of, okay, let's, let's get me out of the day to day. Like that was just a priority for like a year, year and a half. It was like, we need to build a team. We need to build systems. We need to get me out of client facing role. And it was a very painful, gradual process. Mm. But eventually we got to a point where I was basically out of the day to day. I wasn't client facing at all. Um, and we carved out that additional space and time. Um, and we actually were planning to, I was going to start a traditional Chinese medicine company and do, do, go to D to C e-com. Cause I was like, that's, I, I love consumer marketing. That's what I'm good at. Right. So we kind of like started like early stages of the building that business and then backbone as an idea just kind of like arrived. And hmm. I remember, I think I was at an event with Matt from square dance and I was like talking, I was like, Oh, this agency, blah, blah, blah. And like, we built out so many systems to train the team members because it's so hard to find great email strategists. So we just started building all of our training, building out all of our onboarding and we have like I'm like we have so many systems um it's crazy and he's like why don't you just turn that into software I'm like that's mm. the most ridiculous idea of all time like that's dumb and then and then, like dismissed it and then it was one of those ideas where it just didn't leave my mind for like three months and I kept thinking about it and I was like and then I, I literally got so annoyed because I'm like in my head it was a bad idea but it wouldn't leave my mind so I was like let me just map this thing out to prove that it's a bad idea <laughs> and this isn't gonna work but i was like i just need to get this thing out of my head i started mapping it out and the entire like product roadmap feature set positioning target like literally all of that came out in like one sitting um wow. and it was like this like three hour long thing and then and then we kind of kept looking at it i'm like you know what i think we have to do this like i think it's right here like i think we have to do this and we had we, we had all the cash reserves for it already i was already out of day to day um so that's kind of when we started the process with with backbone and in my mind when we when we started building Backbone and launching it, it was going to be two separate companies, right? It was like we had long played the agency, and then there was me Backbone completely separate. And right. now this year, which is its own journey to talk about, um, and the process of actually launching and building a software company is realizing it's actually all one big thing. And it has actually been in the process of launching and building software. I've actually we fallen in love with the agency and service model again. And Ooh, it's why, not, why? It's okay. not like it's better or worse. It's just different. And I just like really beautiful appreciation of like business as a whole. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Why, why, why did you fall in love with it again? Like as in like what elements of it stood out? Yeah. So so I guess for context now, I ha- we have I have some ex- obviously experience in the agency service business, have experience in the software, or st- still super early stage, not in scaling software, but like building and launching software. And then also productized services is something that we kind of started off with um, midway this through this year as well. So now it's like, cool, I have the service model, I have the productized service model, and I have the software model. The biggest thing I didn't appreciate about the service model is how quote unquote like malleable the product is the offering um, so the is. Way I kinda, the offering right. yeah, yeah that's a better word the offering is so if we think about like a, a service-based business a productized service a software and then also like a cpg like a physical product good and think of them as like different materials service-based business is kind of like play-doh it's like as long as like you're on a sales call and you're like kind of within like 50 percent scope of like what you can do and what they want like you can kind of just tell people to do different things like people right. as a team is a very malleable thing you can just mold the play-doh it's like here you 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 want you want like a pirate ship like here's a pirate ship oh you want a statue here's a statue so it's play-doh 
And then productized service is like kind of more like maybe like ice where or maybe somewhere in between or like clay. It's like it's a little bit tougher, but like it's just more systems, but it's still pretty doable. Software is kind of like a block of ice, right? Like you got to carve into it and it's still pretty right. adjustable. But for you to adjust a feature set, like on the sales call, you're either your product either does that thing or it doesn't do that. Thing. Not right. Yeah. And you can still adjust it, but you still have to pay more money in development right. costs to adjust right. the product. And then a physical good, like if you're selling like a shirt or pants, like it just is. And like, yes, you can, you can make adjustments to your product, but like currently your product, there's nothing you can do about it. It just is what yeah. it is. So it's kind of like cement. So that was like one of those like, wow, that's a I great really framework. You should, you should tweet about <laughs> this and write a blog. Yeah. You should do a video or blog or whatever about this, this is amazing. Great framework. Thank you. Um, so there's this, all this stuff where I took for granted how easy it was. The, the process of finding product market fit for service-based businesses is so wildly different than software. And even in building the software, we had done the usual, like, do your MVP, do your user feedback, blah, blah, right. blah. But looking back now, if I'd known what I'd known, I actually would have started, and this is kind of what we're doing now, is like, would have started with a productized service version mm. and then developed the software knowing that it's a lot less malleable as a product. So that was kind of like one of the big things I really learned. And I think that that level of appreciation of in a service-based business, it's so easy to find product market fit and you're making money in the process of finding product market yeah. fit. Whereas a software, you need to find product market fit and then you make money. So the order of events is just completely different. Right. Um, and, and then obviously there's a whole benefit of like cash flow and, and things like that yeah. um, on the agency side as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think SaaS um, or, or just a software business is, is a compounding game. You know, nothing compounds it like that though. Like Calendly is a $4 billion company, which is crazy, right? It's a widget. Like if you think about it, but as an MVP, it's just a small, tiny widget that um, would like help you with scheduling. And there were four other products in the category. And so like it's a multiplayer, you know, opportunity. There were so other people that did the exact same thing. Google eventually came out with their own version of it, but could not, you know, compete. But if you think about it, the first three, four, five, six years, I don't think anyone took it that seriously, you know, compared to like, like Shopify, for example, right? But now, 10 years in the game, amazing, insane, insane, um, you know, valuation and also just the ARR. So it, that's the thing with software is that um, it is a very slow uh, compounding asset, but it's a, it's a beautiful compounding asset over time. But if you're yeah. in, like, it's, like I said, with agencies and services, I think the way, the, the, the other framework, I think this came to mind when you were talking about the way that you describe these two is that, you know, an agency or service business is almost like a job and having a job is helpful to keep pay the rent and keep the lights on. But a software company or software is almost like an asset investing. So that is great. But, you know, if you have like 50K, you're not going to live off of 50K in, in interest rate, right, with the with the investments. So you need you need both, I think, in the long run. But ultimately, the one that will make you insanely wealthy would be software. Um, so I think so. But I think it's also... It it's one of those, like, it's, it's just all bets, right? So yeah, it's, all it's bets. kind of yeah. like, and the way I think about it now is like, one, I, I'm more interested in just doing like a hold co long-term. Mm. And it's like, if there's certain things, if there's certain parts that can be sold, great, but I, I'm actually building everything to not exit or not need to. Right. Um, nice. and, if there, and if it exit, and it's still built to exit in the sense where like, I will be out of the company and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a standalone thing, but we're not optimizing for an exit. And in that sense, it's like, is the software really necessarily better than, a, than an agency? Like not necessarily. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing to kind of think about too is like with an agency, your your or service based business, the chances of losing are a lot lower. So for talking about thinking about our bets in terms of expected value is actually a different equation. So let's say 
an agency is like you're capped at 10 million, but yeah. there's like, an, let's say an 80% chance that you'll hit 10 million. So yeah. your expected value of your agency is actually like $8 million. Yes. Right? Because it's eight or 80% times 10 million. The probability, where, right. Yeah, the probability. Whereas like with a software company, it's like, cool, your cap might be 100 million, but you actually only have a 10% chance of hitting that 100 million. So it's actually only a $10 million business or value, right. like expected value. So is it really that much bigger it's like oh it's actually only marginally better so the way i think about with the agency to software is it's still a leap worth taking but only by like locking down your like expected value of like eight million dollars first because that's pretty more of a guaranteed success and right. you take that guaranteed success and you invest in something slightly less guaranteed and right. you take the software and invest into something else slightly less guaranteed um so i think that part is an important way to think about businesses because everyone always thinks about this the potential to scale we always think about wow software is so much better because it can be an 80 million dollar thing it can be a 100 million dollar thing but your probability of success is so much lower and mm. actually sometimes the math actually works out that your agency might actually be more valuable than your right. software depending on your probability of success between the two I think, you know uh, it reminds me of alex hermosi's story right the way they've done it um they've they've done they've kind of had this similar approach of um a port, I mean, a portco or a holco, um, a, a holco, and they had a software called Allen, and um, and they also had Gymshark and Gym Launch and all that, which is I think productized service, if I'm not wrong. I don't think it was an agency; it was definitely more of a productized thing. And eventually, they sold they sold that version along with Allen, I think, for um, for a massive exit. I think 40 million exit. So yeah, to your point, maybe the better bet or the better move is having hedging against both. You know, yeah. so you have both cash flow and you don't need to exit keep this going and then you also have a, a small like you, you also have a small software side on side that could become big and then that could if it does if the odds are in your favor if it does then you can you know think about it in the future that way yeah and this is this goes back to the whole de-risking as an entrepreneur yeah. right it's how do you reduce how do you increase your probability of success first yeah. And then the second thing I think is making sure you don't lose the game. Like, you yeah. don't exit the game. Like, I think about a video game of, like, just don't die. As long as you don't die, you have 80 years to play this thing. But once yes. you die, then you're right. screwed. So we always optimize for, the like, actually the, the floor first. It's, like, protect our downsides at all costs. Yes. So no matter what, the agency cannot go below a certain threshold our team is always protected because that is our core asset don't lose the team don't lose the ca the the cash flow and then we can and then we can start optimizing for upside but i find a lot of entrepreneurs so focused on opt optimizing for upside, like oh my god this thing has a potential to be a billion dollar thing but if it's going to take you 10 years to be a billion dollar thing but you might die tomorrow <laughs> then what then what good is that 10-year potential yeah um so i think that the the first rule of entrepreneurship is like don't die don't, don't die. exit the game and then, and then, and then all, all the rest, the rest of the rules matter. I love, I love it's so much of what you talk about is so, so like relevant or on point with all my learnings from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. It's so funny. I don't know. Do you, have you, have I you like read any of their stuff, but I just watched so, uh, the Tao of Charlie Munger. Science. That is it's, so funny because the first rule of, you know, investing is don't lose money, right? Warren Buffett's classic maxim. Second rule is don't forget rule number one, right? So the way you described entrepreneurship. By the way, this should be a tweet on its own. Like, you, push, you should put like Warren Buffett on the top. You should put yourself on the bottom and say, Warren said this about investing. Here's my take on it on entrepreneurship. Because it's so true, right? I um, love that. The I number think one I literally tweeted something about like the, set, the six rules of entrepreneurship or something, and I'm trying to find it. Um, it it's so true because the number one rule about entrepreneurship is don't die. I be, but like you said, most people don't talk about this no. until they get in the trenches. And then they're like, oh, my God. You know, I'm like, yeah. So that, that's brilliant. 
you're such a great conversationalist. I'm I'm having so much fun. I'm so excited. So, yeah, I'm, I'm having a great time. And I'm, it's one of those conversations where I'm like, I have no idea where the conversation is going to exactly. go in like it's, five but it's, minutes, it's, but it's great. Exactly. But it's it's to me, the, the, the essence of a great, great podcast interview is where I feel like I'm having a coffee chat with someone who's interesting and someone who's relevant to what I do, my line of work. And, you know, I'm like, I'm peppering them with so many interesting and thoughtful questions, right? Which is exactly what I think the last few minutes have been. Okay, so tell me, um, let's get to the parts where we try to collaboratively create some value or, or tactics for people to walk away with in terms of email marketing. Um, you're the queen of email marketing strategies. Give me or give the audience three underrated strategies about email marketing when it comes to, um, let's say, e-com businesses. Oh, wow. Okay. I've never, I've never been asked this question, surprisingly. I'm now I'm surprised that no one's ever asked me this question. So I'll say to start off, email marketing is kind of a subset of retention marketing. So Ooh. I'll talk about email marketing yeah, what is that? first. Yeah, what is, give, give us a definition maybe. So retention marketing is just the game of like, how do you keep your customers? Email and SMS are kind of the foundational, most important channels to use in keeping your customers, but they're just channels. Um, so when you think about true retention marketing, we're talking about like lifecycle marketing, we're talking about extending customer lifetime value, and there's a lot of different channels, tools, and programs that you should be using as an ecosystem to keep your customers around. Um, I think that's an important conversation to kind of give context to. And so I guess a couple of rules is one, when you're just starting out with any business, but if it's e-commerce specifically, don't invest too much time in retention marketing, um, which is the, the rule against what I, what I share typically. But when you just kind of go back to common sense in the beginning you have no customers to keep so yes. you shouldn't so be investing just get customers first so get the basics down with retention marketing i always say like in the beginning maybe like invest 10 15 percent of your resources whether it's time or money into retention marketing but the rest of the you know 80 85 percent should go into acquiring customers and acquisition so uh when it, when you're investing that first 10 15 percent of effort in retention marketing i always say focus on your automated flows that's the highest roi activity that you could be focusing on it's build it once let it continue running it'll keep your customers around it's just the absolute like give, us, give us one example of an automation flow that would be forever like an evergreen flow S specifically for e-commerce or just kind of yeah, in general for e -commerce. Um, yeah so for e-commerce the basic the basic seven flows are a welcome flow browse abandonment flow add to cart abandoned cart post purchase nurture and win backflow. And that covers all the key areas of your customer journey, which is Damn, I love that you have them on your fingertips. It's so wild. I mean, I've been doing this. I've been doing this for years. So yeah, but like, I, 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 I give you a lot of experts, but they don't like remember <laughs> stuff like this on like so methodically. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like, if I didn't have it on my fingertips, I'd be concerned. But um, <laughs> it really covers each, each area of the customer journey where you could lose customers the most. So welcome flow is anyone from, you know, learning about your brand for the first time, browse abandonment, add to cart, abandoned cart is what we call like the buyer intent flow. So it's like anyone who's showing intent to buy and becoming a customer. Post-purchase nurture is like, make sure your customers are taken care of and like introduced to the product and actually using your product. And then win back flow is bring back lost customers. And then if you have some extra time, you can build out like a replenishment flow, cross-sell flow. Those are focused on getting customers back for a second, third purchase. Um, so we always say, and we literally have like a chart on welcome flow should Minimum be three emails, browse abandonment flow, minimum two emails. So it's literally like, I think 20 emails to get built out. Right. And that should be all the retention work that you do. What's the number one recommended platform to s design and send these emails from your angle, from your point of view? Is it MailChimp or Cla um, Clavier? Clavier is still the leading, uh, I'd say like ESP for e-commerce brands. Um, I think Sendlane is kind of starting to compete um, up there as well. Do they um, do, they so do, the do either of them do SMS too? They yeah. both do SMS. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
so basically get like email and SMS done. Email and SMS strategy is the same strategy. Um, and I know that that in itself is probably a hot take to some people. It shouldn't be. Um, but when we're thinking about true retention marketing, we should be thinking about retaining customers from each stage of the customer lifecycle, which is just lifecycle marketing. So customer lands on your website. They have an intent to buy. They make a purchase. You know, they're getting introduced to a new product. That is the customer journey. Then we back into what email flows are relevant to send to customers at each stage of the customer journey. And then we can back into what SMS makes sense. So mm-hmm. the strategy is the same between email and SMS, but the content, the copy, the timing, those things are going to be different. Tell me about three like peculiar mistakes that most people who are getting who are new in this game make and how should they avoid them? I'd say first one is really just not investing in retention marketing initially. So then you're like acquiring all these customers and it's this like the classic leaky bucket metaphor of like you have all this input, but you're like bleeding out customers. So it's like these seven flows that we're recommending is like patching that bucket. Right? Make sure you at least do the minimum. Second thing is honestly over stressing on email design, copy, strategy, A-B testing. I think A-B testing has been talked about so much and like to the point where it's kind of overkill <laughs> for early stage brands. Yeah. Early stage brands, retention marketing is like just get the stuff out there and say it's like just launch. Doesn't need to be perfect. Get your email flows going out. Get regular campaigns going out. Like that is actually the hardest part of retention marketing is the amount of workload that needs to be created. And I find a lot of these brands get so caught up in like the perfect email design. Is this all optimized? Is this being A-B tested? But the truth is like if you have 100 customers, A-B testing kind of you're you're creating extra work for nothing because you're not going to have statistical significance anyway. And it's stopping you from doing the work that really matters, which is just getting the email out. Right. Um, and it's following that 80, 20 rule, like 80% of the results is going to be generated by getting the email out. And then you can, you can refine and, and do the rest of the testing and design stuff later. Um, so we find a lot of brands and especially early stage founders get really caught up in the details and then you miss the big picture, which is like just doing the work. Um, so that's a big one. The second thing is when it comes to retention marketing, it all starts from the ground, from the, from the foundation, which is like, do you have a business model and a pricing model is actually built to retain customers? And this is yeah. why we're so excited. Like with long play, our ultimate vision is having a holding company with econ brands as well, because right. I think everything goes back to are the foundations strong, right? So, yeah. So I was curious about that third one, right? Which is the, sorry, the second, how can you assess the strength of a foundation of business model? What are some signs? Yeah. The way we kind of think about it is, with retention marketing, the job is to maximize maximize how much of the, the potential lifetime value of a customer we can we can capture with, for the right. brand, right? Let's be honest, where it's the best email marketing in the world is not going to get a, a customer to spend fifty thousand dollars on your brand if you're selling like you know clothes. Like that's just not realistic. So there's there's a very real ceiling to how much a customer, even your best customer, is ever going to spend on your brand, and no amount of good marketing in the world is going to fix that. Like let's just be honest with that. So the foundations of a business model kind of set the potential ceiling of how much a customer can can spend with your brand, and mm. part of that is going to be like the value of the product and the product market fit. Um, but also part of it is around do you actually have additional products to, to for them to naturally expand into? Um, so we get a lot of you know we have brands coming in where they have a single SKU product with some with like that's like let's say worth $30 and they're like we want to do more retention marketing how do we increase customer lifetime value and we're the first ones to say like you can't because you have a single SKU product 
that cannot be repurchased. And no matter how many random periphery add-ons you create, cross-sell strategy is not going to work because those peripheral products were created to cross-sell, not to actually solve a real problem. Mm. And you're just kind of creating additional widgets and like stuff that you're like hoping people will throw in their cart but you're not actually solving a real problem. So the way we kind of look at it is when you're starting your initial business and you're developing and you're deciding what product you want to sell, knowing your customer and knowing what is the core problem you're actually solving for them and what is your product expansion like opportunity, even if you're not building all those products right away, are there naturally other ways you can solve that problem? Or is this a very like single tactical, like isolated problem that you're solving for them? Like if you're just selling something that is like a one use, like problem, it's like someone just needs to buy a charger. Cool. You're going to sell them a charger, but there's no ongoing conversation, right? additional peripheral problems you can solve for them. Then like, there's only so much you can do. So that's kind of where we see the biggest I think, like I feel issues. like a lot of brands uh, make that mistake though. I think majority of the brands that I run into DTC are just trying to sell me. They're very like single skew or I just don't think that they're thinking that far, you know, except the greats, right? Like especially early stage, I feel like um, this is a huge, huge gap. Like, like you said, what kind of business is super exciting for you? Like if you were to create an e-com business right now or purchase one, uh, let me just let me just phrase it this differently. If you could just go out there and magically purchase any any e-commerce business, what would you buy? And don't give me like the, the top Kylie Cosmetics, like, you know, like somewhere in the middle. Mm. Um, I, so I mean, I actually wouldn't go for like any like well-known eight-figure, nine-figure brand or anything like yeah. that because it's like, they're already at the eight to nine figure range. Like all of that is going to be like retail expansion and market expansion. I would actually probably like, and we're kind of actively doing this now is like looking for the ones who are kind of doing like 10 K 20 K. Like they're like super low six figures. They have a, a core product, but like there isn't, they haven't scaled anything yet. Cause that's really like, that's where our operational and industry knowledge is worthwhile. Um, mm. So that's kind of what we would look for. Um, I personally really like the health and wellness space. Mm. Um, because there's that natural like, replenishment element, you can, there's natural product expansion to it as well. I think there's still a lot of opportunity potentially in like apparel, like lifestyle type stuff, but that's not necessarily like my personal expertise in a marketing strategy. So that'd be kind of where I looked like, I think I'd say like health and wellness um, is a big one, but I don't know that I would go into like just pure supplements because there's just too much competition there. So we need to like, be looking for like, there's a few brands off the top of my head that I don't want to out. Um, I know I, I have a few friends who are doing some quite good stuff in the health and wellness space where they found little little niches and little bubbles. And I would look for categories where either one, there's no market leader um, in terms of brand. So it's like, hey, people are still buying like the generic like Amazon grocery store stuff but there's a there's a brand or storytelling that could be had in that category or i would look for categories and products where they're getting some traction but there's a way to actually improve the product itself mm. and the quality and there's that demand that's being proven for like a low quality version of that product um which so is, those are probably the two areas yeah. i would look for yeah which is which is amazing if, the, if, the, if a bunch of low quality products you know can attract demand that means clearly there's a big opportunity there right yeah awesome all right so i think uh for the last segment of this episode episode i got a rapid fire round for you you ready yes let's do it okay cool so question number one what's your favorite cuisine uh thai food oh mine too that's, like that's thai, crazy just pad thai. i'm just very yeah. basic every time i go i'm, like, I'm gonna try something different and i just get pad thai i'm, I'm a panang curry person so you know well Good that's choice, awesome though. um favorite book you wish you read sooner uh oh the creative act by, by, rick, rick by rick rubin i just oh. read that very recently and it's one of those books that you're just savoring like every single page is like wow this is like good stuff 
yeah I'm sad I, when it's over like when i when i find a book where i'm gonna be so sad when it's over you know it's a good book that's the good one okay all right i'm gonna keep going all right favorite musician or artist that hypes you up taylor swift <laughs> Oh, wow. We have a Swifty in the house. I love, I can't lie. I can't lie. There was two or three songs of hers that, but I'm driving. It's the best, right? I could do it's a like, whole oh. podcast just on Taylor Swift. If you need, <laughs> okay. if, you want, if you want me to come back for a round two that you didn't ask for. Round two dedicated just to Taylor yeah. Swift. All right. On her, bu- on her business savviness too. Oh, that too, by the way, right? Mo- un- most underrated. She's a billion dollar artist. Why is no one talking about underrated. this? I yes. can't wait for Founders, Founders Podcast, David Sandra, you know, to do an episode on her because she's OG. She's an OG in that. Okay, number four, favorite project or phase in your career? I really am nostalgic for my times um, at Best Self as a CMO because we were so, so early stage and it was like the golden period of e-commerce that we could just kind of do everything. So we like, we did a live event. We launched a Kickstarter that like was fully funded in like 48 hours. We like did all these like content videos and, and like launched new products and we were just kind of like winging it. And it was just so much fun of like the level of creativity that we had and how easy it was to get traction and success. Um, I, I miss that playground and I wish I appreciated it more for what it was at that time. Um, but I didn't, we didn't know it was the golden age of e-com because we were in the golden age, you know? So <laughs> you were living I, through I it. That. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that. Okay, number five. How would your parents describe what you do for a living? Who? For a long time, they just, I think they still say I send emails. I think their friends think I'm like an admin person and then they're really confused by like my lifestyle. They said that they, they, I send emails and then I think they said now I, I built a tool on, but I don't need my own servers. <laughs> like, <laughs> Some, something Sad. like that yeah serverless not... aws cloud well yeah um it, I, I just can't you know i just can't imagine someone like my grandma who who you know like she's 80 years old like can you, can, can you try can you think about like trying to explain cloud to someone who is over 80 like, i don't even understand cloud I, i'm still <laughs> amazed you know that feature you know that feature on iphone where you can like share wi-fi password every yes. time every time i'm just like but the world is magic. Blow it away. The thing in the world. How magic. does this work? But um, I remember the first time when I told my, my dad, I was like, oh, I'm launching a software company. Like, it's this big, exciting, like, new thing. Um, he was like, where do you where do you put all the data? And I'm like, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know, Dad. He's like, where are the servers? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know how to ask these questions. Um, it's so yeah. it Ask Jeff Bezos that, right? It's AWS. Funny that we mentioned, because if Jeff Bezos calls you and offers you unlimited supply of one item from Amazon, what would you pick? Any item unlimited on Amazon. Hair products. Ooh. My hair maintenance is very expensive, Bill, <laughs> every year, because I'm Asian and I have black hair and I'm trying to make it blonde, like platinum blonde. And hair masks and conditioner are extremely expensive, so I probably really hair okay. That's hair that's masks. an insight that I didn't know coming into this podcast. I don't. I think the whole the grand total of amount that I spent on my hair this year is zero dollars, except for the it, haircut. It is a it is a mid four figure expense every oh, year. Oh, it's a big deal. Okay, yeah. all right. Okay, finally, the last one, last but not the least, what is your definition of success? What is my definition of success? Being able to wake up excited every day, building, creating things I'm proud of with people I love. Wow, that was poetic. In, 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 both, awesome. life, in both life and personally. So like, I think like yeah. creating a home, like building a family, hosting an event, like that is just as much of success as building a business. Yeah. That's awesome. You should also tweet about that. This is okay. such a great line. I, I mean, I'm going to need this whole transfer. You need a, There's like five or six moments where i was thinking like oh my god this clip this clip this is this is so you should definitely when i'll send you all the links um when it comes out you should definitely uh take some of it and then turn it into your own content that's it that was the last question thank you so much jess 
This has been such a blast. I truly had so much fun. I don't know if you could tell. Um, I've done so many podcast episodes and I think I think when I find a great connection, you know, and the way like the way we see life and you know, the way we see business a part of life, I think it's such a true joy. So thank you so um, much for having me. I also had such a blast. And yeah. it's I think the best conversations are the ones where you're you're simultaneously discovering where the conversation is going to go. Um, <laughs> yes. So I really appreciated this. Yes, and I can't wait to bring you back in a future episode again and continue our friendship, all right, online Absolutely on Twitter. I love that. Sounds good. All right, I'll send you all the links when it comes out live and I'll see you around, okay? Perfect. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Bye. Bye, Jess.